you haven't done so, I invite you to turn in the word to the book of 2 Samuel, to chapter 2. 2 Samuel chapter 2. Now, if you weren't here, then you should know that last week we saw David, the famous David of the Psalms, David and Goliath David, finally crowned king over Judah, but not over all Israel at this point. But after years and years of waiting, he is now crowned king over Judah. It can be very instructive to look at what are the first actions taken by a leader when those leaders come into power. You see this in our own history. For instance, with the passing of Franklin Roosevelt, then you have his vice president coming in, Harry Truman. And President Truman remarked the very next day after he learned the news, he said, I felt as if the sun, the moon, and the stars fell on me. And in the first hundred days that he's in office, he has to make these incredible decisions. First, he's informed that there even is the atom bomb. And then he has to determine whether or not the United States is going to use it. Huge decisions that will say much about a leader and their leadership. Now, what we have before us in this section of scripture tonight, while it may not be the very first act of King David, we simply don't know, it is by God's providence the one which the Holy Spirit saw fit first to record from David's reign. And it would seem to be right on the heels of his being anointed before the people of Judah. And this then will be important for what it says about God's kingdom and his king, the kinds of objectives he desires to bring about. So let's give our attention to the word beginning at verse 4. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead. And the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead, and the Asherites, and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David, and the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. That ends the reading of God's word. Let's ask his special blessing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your precious word. We ask that your Holy Spirit would work among us even now, and we ask in the mighty, the precious, the infinitely valuable name of your Son, Jesus Christ, We ask in the name of our Savior. All God's people pray. Amen. Amen. David's first recorded act as a king is basically to send an embassy, a group of people, as delegates on his behalf to go 
and speak with people living in a certain region about 50 miles northeast of modern-day Jerusalem. And when David does this, he basically has two clear objectives in mind. We're going to look at each of those objectives in turn. They'll form our major headings for this sermon. Each of them sheds light on his priorities and on his character as a king. And each of them also points to aspects of God's kingdom in the world. And ultimately, they find their fulfillment in Christ as the king, of whom David was a picture. He was partial, but Christ is fullness. Each one of us will have a relationship to Christ's kingdom. Whether you are for him or whether you are against him, you relate to that kingdom. And so knowing the objectives, especially at the outset of David's reign, will be instructive for us. Now, as I said, there will be two main headings. I'll announce each of them as we come to them. But in the first place, consider something with me. Consider the role that God has given to kings and to people who stand in positions of civil authority. What is their job? Now, much could be said here, but very simply, one of the first things that will come to mind if you are familiar with the scripture at all, especially if you are familiar with Romans chapter 13, is to understand that the civil magistrate has a duty under God to punish and to restrain evil in the world. It's not optional. They must do it. But on the other hand, there's something that's sometimes overlooked, another duty that they have. Romans chapter 13, verse 3 puts it this way. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. They have a duty under God who instituted civil authority to approve and to even praise and honor right action. To honor what God honors, what is pleasing in his sight. Now, in Romans chapter 13, the word used there for approval can, in other contexts, mean praise or even public recognition. And you can think of ways, some ways that our own government here does that with things like a Congressional Medal of Honor, where we want to encourage society to imitate the example of those who do what is right. It should be stressed, especially in our increasingly secularized age, It should be stressed, they don't have a right simply to approve of what they approve of. Under the Lord, their duty is to approve of what the Lord approves of. And in that way, they stand in God's place on earth, manifesting to us something of his promise to reward righteousness. Not surprisingly then, David, upon assuming his office, seeks to begin doing this very thing to honor those who do what is pleasing in the sight of the Lord. He can't give all of God's blessings, but he can give something as a picture of God's faithfulness in this way. And this brings us to the first objective of this godly king. It is to bestow God's blessings upon those who do what is pleasing in his sight. To bestow God's blessings upon those who do what is pleasing in his sight. Now, what was the pleasing thing that the men of Jabesh-Gilead did? Verse 4 says that they buried Saul. That is about the smallest summary you could have of what was probably for them a big ordeal. 
They buried Saul. Do you remember where Saul was? Remember David and his song is weeping over the fact that as far as he knew, the bodies were just left on the battlefield. And here, the men of Jabesh-Gilead have to venture into territory occupied by the enemy and to identify the king and then to bring him back. And probably what is implied here, too, is as much as that one small group could do so, that they funded something like a state funeral to give honors to the king and his burial. Now, why is this so right? Why does David rejoice in this? It's not simply personal. Remember, he loved Jonathan, but here he actually speaks about Saul, not about Jonathan. On the most basic level, the Bible teaches us that it is always right to show reverence to the remains of human beings. So that may be one aspect of this. I don't think it's all of it. But I do think it's worth considering here. When they gather up Saul from the field, they bury him. This is part of our tradition. And when I say our tradition, I'm not talking our Reformed tradition. I'm talking all the way back at least to Abraham. That believers in the promises which God gave to Abraham have historically showed special honor to the remains of human beings. Abraham did so, the only parcel of land he ever owned in his own lifetime in Canaan was a tomb that he purchased at great price. Part of the demonstration of his faith that she would be raised and that land was their land. We are not forgotten or gone at the passing of our souls from our bodies. And this also comes from what the Bible teaches, that human beings, the way that it's been put by, for instance, uh, theologian John Murray who taught at Westminster in Philadelphia, he drew attention to the fact that man does not simply have a body. Human beings are bodily. God doesn't take a soul that was living over there, having all of his own thoughts, and then bring it over to Adam's body and put it in. He forms Adam as a living creature, body and soul as an integrated whole. I mentioned this morning they can be separated. Thank God it's Better to depart and be with the Lord until we're raised. But that was not the Lord's original design. And for that reason, when we think about the remains of a human being, it's a matter of great sorrow to see them in a state of corruption. We're still looking upon the remains of an image bearer. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul uses the analogy of a seed sown in expectation of new life. I say this again not to bind consciences, but it is one of the reasons why historically Christians have not cremated their dead. Sometimes nowadays, in fact, as a pastor and I speak with people who are considering end-of-life issues, what they're going to do with bodies. The typical reasons that I hear for why people are going to cremate their dead, and there was certainly an option, right? Other cultures did cremate their dead at that time. Many cultures, that was the standard operating procedure, and yet they did not do this. One of the reasons why I hear people cremating the dead is cost or it's convenience. Your family benefits more from your witness than whatever small amount of wealth was forfeited. And historically, this is one of the reasons why the churches have formed funds to help have burial services for families who can't afford it. Something is to be said for the fact that the cost of a funeral has become astronomical. And this is where Christians should, I think, actively involve themselves in government to make regulation be such that you can afford a burial. Other states have such regulations. But having said all of that, 
David focuses on something more specific than simply human decency. Look at me at verse 5. He says, because you showed this loyalty, loyalty to Saul, your Lord. And so it's the way that they showed reverence for him as an authority that really comes into view here. Children, I wonder if you know, what is the fifth commandment? Of all the commandments, I would not be surprised if it's not the second most familiar to you of them because it's one parents are likely to quote, honor your father and mother. And it's the first command that the Lord attaches a promise to, that you may live long in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Now the commentator from a while ago, Matthew Henry, he made an observation. He said that, The civil magistrate is a kind of common parent to all of us. They help care for us, discipline us. And for that reason, honor is owed to the civil magistrate. Honor and reverence. And here, they are showing special reverence to an authority. And that pleases the Lord. Not blind obedience, but genuine respect. And then on top of that, Saul was the Lord's anointed. You don't have that in every country and every time, of course, where the Lord in a special way singles somebody out uh, out as a picture of Christ among his covenant people. But that's what Saul was. He was a picture of, in his best moments, the victorious, conquering power of the Lord, defending his covenant people, delivering them. And as they show honor to Saul, they are really honoring God. And David delights in that. He desires to honor them. So what are some of the lessons thus far then? One of them is that we should be stirred to imitate the courage and the reverence of these godly people in Jabesh Gilead. When not, and I don't mean just towards human remains in general. I mean, if they show this kind of honor to Saul, who is simply a picture of Christ to come, and they show this kind of reverence to his dead body, How much more the living Christ who saved us from hell that we are called out to show honor and reverence and love to him. And then we see the promise given to us here as a picture. We see a righteous king upholding God's desire to bless those who walk in his ways. Now, of course, that blessing comes to us of grace because our best works were we to present them of ourselves would be unacceptable. But according to grace, he does promise to bless those fruits which he forms in us by his spirit. And so as you consider that, know that if David would make a promise, look at verse 6, I will do good to you because you have done this thing. How much more faithful is Jesus? He says, if even a cup of water is given in my name, I receive it as unto me and I will repay it. And so this is the first objective of David here, to promise and to bestow God's blessings upon those who are pleasing in his sight. There is a second objective, though. And I think to understand it in part, you should know something of the background here. What led the men of Jabesh-Gilead in particular to go out and recover the body of Saul? As I mentioned, this was dangerous, and they were probably not the closest. As I looked at the map, they didn't seem to be the closest And yet they went out, and they recovered the body, and they wished to honor Saul in this way. Do any of you know, I wonder? I did not know, and so I picked up a 
Bible that had the list of related verses, and I saw one there, and early on in the week I thought, oh, I wonder what's there, and I, I went over to that. 1 Samuel chapter 11, I don't ask you to turn there, but it's one of those, as soon as I read the story, I said, oh, I remember this story, I forgot that. It's the story where this is after Saul had been anointed, but before he had done anything as a king. So he's not living in a state, he, he, he's just, to all purposes, he just looks like some man in Israel. And then the people of Jabesh-Gilead receive a threat from the Philistine people. The Philistines say, bow to us, pay us a lot of money, and we'll cut your eye out as tribute. If you don't, we're going to kill you. And the men of Jabesh-Gilead, in effect, say, you can read it for yourself, 1 Samuel 11, can we have three days to think about this, whether we're going to fight you or pay you with our eyeballs? And during that time, they send a messenger out to Saul. We heard you're anointed, and we have no idea what you're capable of because you've never been proven on the battlefield. But if God anointed you, you're the one we're going to ask. And that was an act of faith. And Saul comes up, and he routs the enemy. It's his first act as a king. The men of Jabesh-Gilead did not forget the Lord's deliverance. They want to honor Saul. Well, they had been so loyal to Saul. The big question here then, now that there's a new anointed king, will they be faithful to David? And this is the second objective that David has, to call these people to submit voluntarily to God's chosen king, to fall in line with his kingdom. For them, again, this would be an act of faith. As word would spread from the many witnesses who had seen David anointed by the prophet Samuel, this would be an act of faith in more ways than one. Now, note again, David had a right from the Lord to rule over all Israel, though it was going to take time. When God called him under the prophet Samuel, he told him he would reign over all the tribes. At this point, only Judah is acknowledging him. But the land and the people, they belong to the Lord. They don't belong to anyone else. Nobody else has a rightful claim. The problem that we encounter in this text is that there is a rival claim coming up. Look at me at verse 8. You have another group of people demanding loyalty from Gilead. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him to Mahanaim. And he, that is Abner, made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Now, that doesn't mean he controlled all those places. He's asserting control, saying, oh, he has a right. And what are they basing this on? Well, remember, originally, part of the fault of Israel was that they wanted a king after the nations, not after God's heart. And in the nations, they saw that the way that you maintain stability among a people is to pass power down to the closest male heir. That was the wisdom they had. And even to this day, there are peoples in the world who believe that is the best way to maintain stability. You can't leave it up to elections or anything else. It's just trust that providence is working through the next closest man. Now, God himself did choose in Israel's history to pass power down that way. But up to this point, he did not tell them he was going to do that. That doesn't come until he hit chapter 7 of this book, where he makes that promise to David concerning his line. At this point, 
God is, if anything, saying the opposite. I am free to choose whom I will. I chose Saul, now I choose David. I'm going to choose who I determine is right for my people. Ishbosheth is the fourth eldest son of Saul. His older three sons are killed at that battle. We don't know why Ishbosheth wasn't there. The only times he's mentioned in the text, only three things are described about anything that he does. None of them are significant. One is that he's just lying in a bed. He seems to be a weak person, certainly not the leader. Abner is running this. Abner made him king. Ishbosheth is perhaps older than David and yet has not even come on the scene with any kind of significance. Ishbosheth's very name, we're not even certain that, that his real name is Ishbosheth. It may be something put in by the writers to mark something out because literally it means man of shame. And most parents don't name their children man of shame. <laughs> right? Although it could be a, a picture to disappointment, a nickname that catches on. This is whom Abner chooses, and probably not because Abner thinks this guy's going to be my boss. Abner is the uncle of Saul, and he was second in functional command. Now he's the general in charge, so he's a kind of strong man. I lay this out not to say that Abner is necessarily a horrendous person. In some ways, he shows good character to other parts of the story, and that's the real world. It's complicated. But you have here a picture forming between two rival kingdoms. One, a kingdom of men chosen by someone who is not bowing to the Lord's will. And then the other, you have the Lord's chosen kingdom with the man of his choosing. And the people of Jabesh Gilead are forced to make a choice. If they honor David, they are probably going to have to fight their way out. If you look on the map, they are near the heart of the area where Abner sets up basically his headquarters. Look with me at verse 7. Now therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. David is speaking so tactfully, and yet you can't miss it. In effect, he is saying, whatever claim which the Benjamites had over you, which was given to them through the Lord's choice of Saul, is broken. And now it's time for you to show loyalty not to me, but to the Lord who has appointed me. Be strong and be valiant, because it would come at a cost. In the very next section that we're going to see, Lord willing, in two weeks, we're going to see that there is going to be bloodshed that arises out of the ambition, out of the fear of Abner and Ishbosheth and those who unite. You think, what is driving them here? I don't think it's as simple as they say, well, I don't believe that David is the Lord's anointed. Most people don't operate that way. They have underlying desires and appetites that they want to fulfill, and then they find seemingly credible reasons. For them, it's not surprising that, of course, Ishbosheth, who was fourth in line and really not in the running, suddenly is a way to have power and riches. And then you have, oh, and also he would probably expect David to want to kill him as a, as a past rival. David shows himself to have the total opposite heart. Here you have a man who's literally going to lose his life because he wouldn't believe that the Lord's servant was as generous as he was. David's not the one who kills Ishbosheth. His own people do. And then you have Abner. Abner wants to maintain power, authority. He doesn't believe either that David could possibly be so generous as to take 
the servant of Saul, and make him. And yet that is what David wanted to do. And you have a picture if David can have such an enlarged heart of graciousness, of magnanimity, and he is God's king for his people. What does it say about Christ? And yet the world consistently chooses a kingdom that is utterly self-destructive. And when you choose to place sin, Satan, in this world as dominating how you are going to serve, you will be destroyed in the process. Contrary to that, we're called to make this choice to be strong and valiant. The words of Jesus are very clear in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. So think then, what are the lessons the Lord is calling us to in this? There are many, but I draw your attention just to a few. First, the Lord calls each one of us to choose which king we're going to serve. It is not an option. I spoke to a person this week, and the person I know at one point identified as a Christian doesn't really now. The person said, I just think everybody chooses their own thing, and I don't think anything will come of it. And if there is a God, I don't think that God is going to be terribly judgmental about which path they took. That is exactly fitted to the world. And Jesus said there is a way that is broad. It leads to death. I tried to reason with the person to consider some of the proofs, some of the, some of the reasonings why the Bible is reliable, why we have to take it seriously. It was a deep grief that it didn't seem that this person wanted to spend more than 10 minutes collectively weighing out what is in the balance. When anyone comes to faith, we acknowledge that as the work of the Holy Spirit, a sovereign work, something that we cannot credit to them. On the other hand, remember when the Apostle Paul is preaching in a synagogue and the people are rejecting what he's saying, and he brushes off the dust and he says, you have judged yourself, in effect. If people will not give time to consider the kingdom, it is a judgment upon themselves. Now, when you choose, you choose in two ways. One is, in a sense, once for all time, and this is conversion. Coming to Christ in faith and laying our faith upon him that he will receive us. But then there's an ongoing sense in which we are always reaffirming Christ is my king. And the Jabesh Gileadites, if they affirm David, that was a choice they were going to be affirming every day from this point on. And when we gather together on the Lord's Day, in part this is covenant renewal, reminding ourselves we are serving Christ. Verse 7 is imperative here for us. Where it says, Saul, your Lord, is dead. Whatever claim your former life had on you, whatever barbs the world still has in you, that Lord is dead. We saw that this morning. The death we died, we have died to sin once and for all. Hear what it says in Colossians 1, verse 13. I don't ask that you to turn there, it's brief, but listen carefully. Colossians 1, 13. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. The Gileadites, 
They were serving because they were so grateful for the deliverance they had from Saul, who saved their eyes, who saved their lives. We serve Christ who has saved our souls, our everlasting life, who gave us eyes to see. And then out of that, if you have chosen to be on the Lord's side, then live and fight for him and know that it will be costly. Of course, there are the, the tedious things of the Christian life, and most of your Christian life is going to be that. But on the other hand, and I say it especially to the younger ones here, if you side with Christ openly and publicly, more and more it will cost you your jobs. It will cost you your acclaim in the world. It will cost you your social circles. It will cost you your family. I speak as someone who has lost several of those things. Choose who you'll serve And then know that he promised, I will not fail to repay beyond anything that you actually deserve. Christ will not be your uh, put in the position as seeming like he wasn't as generous as you. Like you were more devoted than him. That's not going to happen. The riches he has stored up for those who serve him. How can we even imagine? 1 Timothy 6.11, I'll read this passage and then we'll close. It says, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you were made, about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus. And then he goes on, He who is blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. This is who we are fighting for and to whom we'll give an account. He will not become, by comparison, a a cheap giver. He will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant, Enter into the joy of your master. Let's ask him to help us in that fight even now. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word. It declares to us that there is a fight, though the world would want us to forget that it even goes on. Yet how can we forget? You are the Lord of life. Your desire is for the resurrection of your people never to die again. And yet this very night on Screens throughout our land and adorning houses, if it can be called a perverse adornment, are the mutilated images of bodies which you created glorious and beautiful, your image bearers, second in creation, and yet to be raised even higher than the angels. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us great loyalty to you and to Christ, to be grateful for the deliverance that we have, for the hope that we will not be separated from him, but that for all time we'll enjoy his kingdom. We thank you for the promise generously poured out upon us that you will repay our meager faithfulness with abundant blessing and glory. Help us to be moved by that, Lord. Soften us. Give us that heart. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.